the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And I have the honor and the privilege of meeting with you every day here at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, questions about doctrine that's bugging you, things that might be going on in your life. We'll do the best that we can to answer any and all of those questions. All you have to do is call us. Uh, you can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free if you're outside the local area, 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app Uh, you all know more about how to get that than I do but it's free and all you have to do is find an outlet for it Uh, and you can send information and questions to us that way if you're driving in your car especially with wet streets and things going on out there the safest way is to use the free KSLR mobile app Uh, Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer who is ready and poised to take your questions. One more time, 340-9585. Now there's nothing going on on Tuesday, so one quick comment before we get into our questions. Um, This is Joy of Jesus Week. We would appreciate your prayers more than you can possibly know. Uh, Joy of Jesus is an event that we do every year, the last Saturday in October. That means this Saturday, October the 27th, at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Uh, From 11 o'clock to 3, uh, we'll be hosting our 20th annual Joy of Jesus uh, event. It is almost indescribable. Uh, I could tell you what's going on, but you wouldn't get the picture. Uh, We'd love to join you, those of you in the radio audience. uh, I'll be out there all day with Paula. If you want to meet us, just come out, and we'd love to say hello to you, and thank you for listening to the program. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday. The one area that we still need some help with is with haircutting or grooming professionals. Uh, If that describes you, and if you want to have the best day of your life, as a Christian, I promise you, uh, it's a life-changing day. Uh, we'd love to have you. All you have to do is show up at the park, uh, try to get there before 11 o'clock. Uh, if you have questions or need some more specific information, uh, you can call the church office at 210-658-8337 and let them know that you heard about this uh, on the radio program. Give them your name and phone number, and we'll have our Joy of Jesus pastor and the people call you back. But we would love to have your help and I'm not exaggerating when I say that this will be a day that will change your life to touch people to, to watch them transform physically and as Christ is being shared with them most often by the person doing the cutting of the hair um, many many of them are transformed spiritually as well it is 
an amazing thing. One of the things that I've never been uh, uh, able to understand fully, but, but I delight in the fact that I know it's true, is that there is a connection between physical touch and spiritual touch. And over our now 20 years doing the Joy of Jesus event, to see how people's hearts change just because there are people physically touching them. Now, we have a massage ministry out there. Uh, we have, our, of course, Malta Medical out there. Our whole uh, uh, crew of doctors and nurses will be out there. Uh, the same thing applies to them. There's just something. There's some way that God uses the physical touch uh, as we proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. And uh, it's your opportunity to be used. I know that Saturday, for most of you who are, are hair professionals, is your busy day. But I promise you this will be the best sacrifice you can ever offer the Lord. And it's one that you'll never want to stop offering. I promise you that. So all you have to do is let us know. We would love to be able to count on some help. Okay, let me get to questions. Our first question. We'd love your phone calls today because our question treasure is getting a little bit diminished here. This one is from Richard from our email inbox. Good day, Pastor Ron. I'm reading in the book of Matthew and came across this particular verse that made me somewhat perplexed. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 8, and in particular verse 7, if I'm reading this correctly, it sounds like they sat Jesus on top of both the donkey and the colt in addition to putting their clothes on the animals. I'm reading this from the New King James Version. Also, is there a difference when the Bible speaks of the disciples in verses 1 and 6 of the same book as being of the twelve? Is this describing one and the same when the scriptures use both or either words? We know Jesus had followers. He called disciples and the twelve disciples, which he chose to spread the good news. Um, Richard, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Let me, let me share with you. I'm going to go turn to the New King James Version uh, of this in on my uh, computer Bible program here. Um, verse 7, you said, They brought the donkey and the colt laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. The, the Greek in the context here demands that they are the same who went out um, to, to find the, the donkeys. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to try to explain about this passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorites, and it's something, of course, that we do every Palm Sunday. So it's something that, that our church has heard every single year. And the story never, ever gets old. There was a specific day uh, prophesied by the prophet Daniel in the ninth chapter of his prophecy. Um, a day that the Messiah would announce himself. Um, that day was established uh, by the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Uh, we can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. And this was a day that all Jews wanted. Now, this was a year when the crowds were larger than normal. This was a year when um, people would be flooding in the city, hope, hoping that they would see the Messiah. This was the day that, that the prophecies had decided that this would be the day the Messiah would, would publicly be proclaimed. You can imagine how exciting it was. And that's why the streets were so crowded. Now, during the Passover, it's always crowded in Jerusalem. It always was. And, but this year it was different because this was a day, and I always try to explain it to my church like this, Richard. This was a day when calendars would be marked down. I could just imagine a Jewish father saying to uh, his son, there's only five more days until Messiah comes. There's only four more days until Messiah comes. And when they came in uh, on that day, uh, a large part of the crowd would have thought, well, it must be Jesus. He's doing things that nobody ever did. Uh, another part of the crowd would think, well, we don't want it to be Jesus because Jesus isn't saying the things we want him to say. You know, Jews wanted the Messiah to come and deliver them from Roman rule, from Roman oppression. And the Christ, of course, we know when he came, he came to deliver them from themselves that was a battle they didn't think they needed to wage. And on this particular day, it was, according to the widely accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson, April 6th, 32 AD, 
exactly 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, exactly when he was expected. By that I mean over and over we read throughout the Gospel accounts at just the right time. Jesus was there at just the right time. He'd been doing miracles that only the Messiah was prophesied of doing. He was teaching with authority like no one had ever taught before. All of this to say, Richard, that there, everyone in that crowd was without excuse. And yet they still rejected him. They still rejected him. As the morning began, Jesus sent two of his disciples. They would be two of the twelve. We don't know who. We aren't given that information. And basically he would tell them to go find a donkey. Jesus, of course, was to fulfill the prophecies in Malachi. And that's exactly what he did. So when they went and found donkeys tied up all over Jerusalem that day, it was because families wanted the Messiah to use their, their animal. Now, that there was a colt and a foal, or, or I'm sorry, the, the, a mother and a, and a colt, a foal of that donkey. doesn't mean he rode them both. He didn't sit on them both. They would have covered them both. But, but Jesus would have sat on the donkey, the foal, one that had never been ridden before. The mother would be there, of course, because a mother and her foal wouldn't be easily separated. And Jesus would ride into Jerusalem accepting publicly for the very first time the information that I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. So it would be his disciples, two of the twelve. They would be the ones in verse 7 that you asked specifically about who would, who would lay their cloaks on the donkeys and Jesus would be helped up on the foal. Think about that for a moment. A donkey that had never been ridden, and yet that donkey surrendered, submitted to his master. And of course we know the rest of the story. It's an amazing thing to me to consider, Richard, that when he showed up exactly the right time, he did the miracles that only the Messiah could do. He was riding a donkey, as was prophesied, if he'd come in on a horse. That was part of the problem, by the way, that a horse would be what kings would ride in times of war. Donkeys were peacetime animals. And they wanted the Christ to make war on Rome. But Jesus came to make war on sin. So, Richard, I hope that answers your question. Uh, if you are interested, Richard, you can go to our website. Um, go get any of our Palm Sunday teachings. Uh, I do the same story every year. And I said earlier, it never gets old. Um, but what I try to do and what I'd like you to do when you're reading this passage is put yourself right in the middle of that crowd. Right in the middle of that crowd. What would you do if the man you were expecting your Lord and Savior showed up and the one thing he asked you to do is stop sinning. Repent of your sins. Stop doing the things that you have always wanted to do and instead surrender your life to me. You know, we can be pretty critical in 2,000 years later of how could they have missed him? But often we do the same thing. So Richard, I hope that answers your question. You can go to calvarysa.com and you can find that out. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Brian. He says, Pastor Ron, I know God expects us to do without sex until we're married, but I think that's unreasonable. Why would a loving God deprive us of this one thing? Well, Brian, there's a lot of things that our loving God deprives us of. All the things that are bad for us. Now, I want you to think about something. Anytime we ask a question, why would a loving God do something? We're really questioning whether or not God is a loving God. The Father who sent His only Son to die for your sins, there should be no question that we ever ask about whether or not He's really loving. 
by the way, that's in his wilderness temptation, what the devil tempted Jesus with. Would you be hungry if God loved you? Why are you out here in the desert with me when you could be elsewhere? If God loved you, if your father were God. And of course, Jesus responded with the word of God. So Brian, here's, I'm going to be really direct with the answer to this question. God who loves you deprives us of things that are not good for us. He deprives us of alcohol. He deprives us in excess. He deprives us of the freedom to do drugs. He deprives us of our freedom to be angry and hateful and unforgiving. Well, sex is just something else that he deprives us of. But he does so because it's good for us. It's good for us. He's trying to prevent us from doing what is wrong. When we sin, we're separated from God. And whether you think it's unreasonable or not that God wants us to abstain from sex, we have to remember a couple of things. When we call Jesus Lord, Brian, we're putting him in charge. That means we don't have any rights. We have to understand that what he wants for us is best for us, what he forbids us to do. He does so because it's not good if we fall into those sinful patterns. God made a sexual being. Sex was his creation. Sex is a good thing, a wonderful thing. But because he is the creator of that gift, doesn't it make sense then that he ought to be able to be the one who establishes the boundaries, the rules for enjoying it? And Brian, he doesn't want to deprive you of this enjoyable gift. He just wants you to wait until you can use it for his glory. And the only way you can do that is between a man and a woman, husband and wife. And then you're going to find out just how really good and how really holy that gift of sex is. I want you to think, Brian, the next time you pray and say, Lord Jesus, with an attitude like you've expressed in this question, is he really your Lord at all? When you have children, you're going to tell them there are things that they can do, and you're going to keep forbid them from doing some things. Why? Because you love them. Well, that's exactly what God is doing here. Brian, I hope that makes sense. In fact, I'm praying that it makes sense to you because these are important attitudes to resolve. Here is a question from Daniel. Daniel wants to know, how is it possible to love someone whose lifestyle offends me? Daniel, when I got this question yesterday, um, uh, I, I was sort of laughing because Paul and I were talking about this very thing at home uh, as she was reading the Bible to me. Uh, you know, there are things that people do and things that people say and, 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 and people who are antagonistic. There are people who live lifestyles that, that openly are in rebellion against God. And we who are Christians, you know, we want to defend God and we look at them and it's hard to love them. At least we don't feel loving toward them. But remember that those are the people who are the object of our ministry. And what we've got to do is remember that we're his ambassadors, we're Jesus' representatives. And we've somehow got to convince people who are lost in sin, no matter how objectionable it might be to you, it's our job to try to, to, to convince them that, that, that there is a God of love who loves them with an infinite love. And that same love that was extended to you, we want to be able to extend to others. And so it's not a matter of, is it possible? Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given you. He doesn't want you to love difficult people with your love. Your love is conditional. Your love is inadequate. He wants you to love them by faith with his love. And for me, Daniel, the best way I, I can do this is simply to remember that the people, even those that are really offensive to me, I have to remember that God loves them as much as he loves me. And Christ in us 
the hope of glory. It's the only way that we're able to do that. So we have to acquiesce to his love for someone. You know, Jesus' disciples, when they would walk behind him as they were traveling through Jesus' ministry, there were times when they had really contentious arguments. Peter got so discouraged at one point, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive them? And Jesus said, keep on forgiving them. And we've got to do that as well. And it's just something that doesn't come natural. It's not instinctive to us. But it's one thing that we have to understand that we're obligated to do. Paul says he's a debtor, both the Greeks and Jews, to declare the gospel of Christ to them. A debtor, he owes it to them. In the same way, Daniel, we owe it to those people. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Keeping no record of wrongs is a description of love. And so if we're walking in the power of God's Spirit, then not only can we do this, but it'll bring us great joy to do it. You know, in the world that we live in, with all of the LGBTQ um, polarization that goes on in this country, I want to be one of those men, Daniel, that God can send the worst of the worst to. And the reason I owe that to the Lord it's because I was one of the worst of the worst. 27 years ago, when God reached down to the pit and grabbed me and saved me, I truly was one of the worst of the worst. And if I forget what God did for me, and the result of that, or the bad fruit that comes from that, is not being able to minister his love to others. Well, that would demonstrate a very ungrateful heart. Paul, in writing to the churches in Thessalonica, said, Brothers, you used to be this way, and he described their own lifestyle, but now, we're told that God chose in the letter to the Corinthians the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise, the weak things, to shame the strong. Well, now our job, as those who know Christ, is to extend that hand of love to, to, to the most objectionable of people. So, Daniel, this is something you got to do because God commands it. Two practical suggestions. The first one is this. Pray for those people, whoever it is. Pray for them over and over and over, and God will change your heart. Second practical example is make it a point to reach out to them. You know, Daniel, I don't know where you live. Um, I don't know if you're the same Daniel that sends in questions from time to time or a different one. But... Let me give you a good opportunity to practice. How about showing up at Travis Park this coming Saturday from 11 to 3 because there's going to be a whole bunch of people whose lifestyle offends you. And you're going to have an a, a opportunity, a golden opportunity to be Jesus' arms and his heart. Maybe to be his hugs. You're going to have opportunities to share the good news about Jesus Christ to people that have no interest at all in hearing it. But here's what I can promise you. The first time one of them says yes, and they will. The first time one of them says yes, I want Jesus. I promise you it will melt your heart. And the mission field down there is going to be really, really, really ripe for harvest. So do that. We've got just a little over a minute left in this half of the program. We'd love your calls at 340-9585. Let me say this. Um, 
the weather forecast is going to be like 75 degrees and sunny. The latest forecast I think that, that I heard this morning was near 80 degrees. So the weather is going to be perfect. And there's no better way to spend four hours of your Saturday than to come down and just see what God is doing. Even if you're embarrassed, even if you're a little shy about sharing, just watch what God is doing. And I promise you the power of the Spirit will come upon you and you'll be emboldened to do things that you didn't think you ever would. You will be blessed beyond measure. So Daniel and anybody else who's listening, you have an invitation. Come on down Travis Park this coming Saturday at 11 o'clock and let God use you to be a blessing to someone else. Let him use you to change the heart of other people who are ministering to people whose lifestyles once offended them. Did I say we've got Joy of Jesus coming on Saturday? <laughs> we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We would love your live calls, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. We would love your live calls and questions. Here's an interesting question that came in from Sean. He said, should pastors confront people in their church that they know are in sin? Sean, the answer, the short answer is yes, but I want to do a little bit more with this question than that. Uh, there's no place in the Bible where it relegates confronting people who are in sin to pastors. We, because these are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we owe it to them to tell them the truth in love. And if you know somebody is living in sin, whatever that sin is, then as a believer who cares about the body, what happens to one happens to all. It's your responsibility as a Christian to confront them. Now, I want to talk about this word confront for a moment because the minute we think confront, it's like, brother, you're in sin, repent. It's not at all the approach that we should take. Confrontation doesn't have to be ugly and it doesn't have to be difficult. But because we care, the people in whose lives we are invested, we have to care enough about them to tell them the truth. Bro, you're, you're, you're a Christian, I know you are, but, but how can you do this? How can you do this? Somebody's filing for divorce, they don't have biblical grounds. Why don't we say to them, you know, this is wrong. This is going to cause pain in your life. And this is causing Jesus' heart to break. Somebody who's in a physical relationship, a sexual relationship with somebody they're not married to. If you know about it, you've got to tell them. And Sean, all too often people come to pastors in the church and say, well, I know this is going on. You need to go talk to them. And my first question is always, well, what happened when you went to talk to them? Oh, well, well I, I haven't done that. Well, then don't come to me. Go to them. Because you care. Let's, let's move from gossip to, to really demonstrating how much you care for somebody by going to them and tell them, I'm worried about you. I'm seeing behavior. A, a man yells at his wife. Other men need to come alongside that man and say, you know, you can't talk to her like that. You just misrepresented Jesus. Instead of loving your wife the way Christ loved the church, you were harsh with her. You see, we've got to accept the responsibility. I think we've got to put on our big boy trunks and, and, and act like mature Christians. If you see somebody in sin, you have to go to them. Now, let me get back to the specific context, pastors. 
Um, we do confront people in their sin. The problem is, by the time a pastor gets involved, typically they don't listen to us either. You know, one of the things, Sean, that I think people are under a false impression about the relationship between pastors and people in their church, um, far, far, far and away, the majority of people don't listen to a word I say. They hear the words, but they don't do what I tell them to do. And so when a pastor gets involved and says, you know, you've got to stop doing this, then we've got to be at a point where there's church discipline involved. And in this day and age, that's always an unfavorable thing. You're judging me. No, you're, you're, you're doing these things that the Bible defines as sin. We give counsel all the time. The truth is, people just don't do what we tell them to do. Now, remember, we're representing Jesus. We're on his side. So we're, we're giving them the word of God. And yet, if they're not committed to Jesus, they're not going to do what we counsel them to do. That's why the body itself, Sean, is so important. Most people will listen more quickly to a friend than they will a pastor who they only know as a talking head. But yeah, we do confront people in the church if we know they're living in sin, um, whether it's alcohol or drugs, anger, unforgiveness, um, marriage issues, sex, doesn't matter what it is. It's our job because we love people. But maybe we can all together take this word confrontation and maybe change the idea, the thought process, that, well, this is the way love behaves. This is the way love acts. And yeah, we should. But make no mistake, people don't listen to us any more readily than they listen to anybody else. 340-9585 for your love, live calls. Ricky wants to know, what is the difference between a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom? Ricky, that's hard to, to, to quantify. I, I don't, uh, it, it's, it's really hard to explain. A word of knowledge is simple. God gives you some information about something uh, or someone. Uh, they're talking to you, and God will just give you a word of knowledge. Then, then you'll, you'll share that word of knowledge, and the whole idea is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit will then be able to follow. Let me give you one example. And this happened many, many, many years ago. There was a young man who uh, just... To say he wanted to monopolize my time is an understatement. He's always wanted to talk. And I'd leave every conversation... Uh, feeling like, you know, there's something he wants to say to me, but he won't say it. And so finally one day, uh, he came up and he wanted to talk to me again. And he started beating around the bush again. And I said, look, you know, you, you always have something you want to say to me, but you're never quite getting to say it. And right then, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, he's gay. And I said, are you gay? And he broke down right before me because the one thing that he couldn't say, God already knew. So that's a word of knowledge. A word of wisdom is a little bit more difficult to describe because it's sort of the right and the timely application of the knowledge God gave you. You know, a word of wisdom for a Christian ought to be easy in the sense that we are only being wise when we're giving people the word of God. One of the things I beg our people here at Calvary Chapel all the time, stop giving people your opinions, please. Be a man or a woman of the word. And if you hide the word in your heart, God will bring it out at just the right time. And you'll be able to be used by the Lord to bring words of wisdom to people. Words of direction, words of correction. But, but, but I think wisdom is the timely application of the knowledge given by the Holy Spirit. So I really think, Ricky, that this is an area that's really lacking in body life in most churches. So this is one of those times when you can say, okay, Lord, is there anything you want me to say? You know, when somebody asks me a question, we get a call uh, while I'm listening to the question, I'm praying 
Lord, help me to, to know what I need to know to answer this question, or help me to know what you want to say to this person. And God will give you words of knowledge frequently. Remember, they're His words. We don't own them. And we have to use them humbly and lovingly. Never use them to slap somebody spiritually. And the more you're obedient, then I think the word of wisdom then comes in to, to play the wisdom to make the right choice at the right time. So that's the best I can do with that one, Ricky. Thank you very, very much. Uh, here's an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, what sex acts are permitted within the confines of marriage? Anonymous, the only sex act that is not permitted in a marriage is sodomy. Sodomy is universally, from Genesis through the end of the book, universally um, condemned. Uh, it is an unnatural use of the human body, whether it's a hetero or homosexual sex. And so uh, sodomy is simply not permitted. Beyond that, God wants you to enjoy your husband's or your wife's body. It's just that simple. He wants them to enjoy your body. And whatever you can do without forcing somebody to do something that violates their conscience is perfectly okay and acceptable. You know, Anonymous, one of the things that we do, uh, one of the things I do here often is in pre-marriage counseling, um, our last pre-marriage counseling session, you know, the, the, the day or two before the, 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 the marriage itself is always about sex. And we talk about these things. Uh, in the marriage, God wants sex to be three things. First, he wants it to be selfless. Selfless. A man's body's not his own. A wife's body's not her own. It belongs to her husband or to his wife. He wants it to be selfless. We should strive within the sexual relationship in marriage to please our spouse. Not, not to be pleased. Of course, that will happen. But our motive should never be to be pleased, but rather to give pleasure. So the sex relationship in a marriage is to be selfless. Uh, a wife uh, should never say no to a husband. A husband should never say no to a wife. I mean, there are things that happen that make it impossible, and certainly there are things that, that uh, occur that that now would not be the right time. But generally speaking, uh, the wife should be available to the husband, the husband available to the wife. Now, one of the other things I want to say about this is that uh, men, and maybe this is a bit of a stereotype for that, I apologize, but most of the time it's men who come to a pastor and say, well, my wife uh, won't, won't satisfy my sexual needs. Um, you know, we men, we need to be loving, we need to be kind, we need to be patient, we need to be selfless, trying to please her rather than us, but we also need to be clean. We need to be clean men. And your wives will be more than willing. So the first thing is the sex relationship should be selfless. Second, it should be holy. The marriage bed is undefiled. Paul writes to the Hebrews. And if the marriage bed is undefiled, we don't want to defile it with fantasies. We don't want to defile it with pornography. Uh, we we want to make sure that, that our wives are the object even of our sexual fantasies. And ladies, the man in your life is the only one that gets to enjoy your body that way. The only one that gets to see you in intimate times and places. But holiness matters. The sex act between a husband and wife is literally a holy experience. I know this sounds weird to people, but, but think about it. Jesus is there when a husband and wife are having sex. He's there. It's the closest relationship picture that we have of what our relationship will be like in heaven with him. And so he wants it to be holy. Third, he wants it to be passionate. 
He wants to be patient. One only needs to read the Song of Songs, where with graphic yet poetic and beautiful detail, all kinds of sexual acts, including oral sex, are described. He wants it to be passionate. It's almost like God says, okay, be fruitful and multiply, but wait till you see the fun you're going to have doing it. He wants it to be passionate. Men, he wants your eyes to be only for your wife. Ladies, he wants your eyes to be only for your husband. He wants a relationship to be passionate. I always add playful. It should be fun. And in those confines, Anonymous, whatever satisfies your spouse is permitted and I would say blessed by the Lord in the process here's a question from Jerry he says why are there three heavens and where are they well Jerry there's not really three heavens in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul describes in third person language by the way his trip to heaven when he was stoned in Lystra, stoned to death, he was taken to the third heaven. And by that he doesn't mean that there's, uh, you know, sort of a, a probationary heaven and then a, a heaven that's kind of good and then the third heaven, which is perfect. Um, the third heaven, he's just describing the, the abode of God. That's what he means by the third heaven. And to make it real simple for you, the first heaven... You know, we can go out today and look at the sky. That's the, the first heaven that Paul was talking about. It's just what we can see. The second heaven would be what we call outer space. Where we can't see it with the naked eye. But when we go beyond gravity, when we go beyond the environment that, that we can see and experience, um, that's the second heaven. And Paul's point when when he was taken to the third heaven he was just saying look I was taken way beyond anything I could imagine and I'm with God in the place that he dwells that's the third heaven so that's all that means it's nothing more than that he's just using these celestial terms to help us understand so Jerry I hope that answers your question um Paul wants to know, Pastor On, is it possible for anyone to be certain they're going to heaven? Uh, Paul, I'm certain. I'm absolutely 100% certain that I'm going to heaven. So of course I am. I know it because Jesus promised it. doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I feel. Jesus took away my sins. So yeah, you can know. In fact, he wants you to know. First John John writes, these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope or wish, but to know that you have eternal life. Uh, and I think that security is one of the most important things that God wants us to enjoy. You know, Paul, life gets really hard at times. As humans, we, we do dumb things, we make mistakes, we mess up, we sin. And there's always going to be a devil there who tries to, to, to condemn you and make you feel like God's done with you. He's never going to give you another chance. But you see, my Bible says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It doesn't say that he started it, but I have to start to finish it. He will be faithful. Not me. And when we understand that, there's a sense of gratitude that changes your outlook on everything. Yeah, Lord, I'm sorry I messed up, but I'm still yours. I'm still yours. Our study tomorrow night here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, um, David is going to be writing about some of these very issues. And David, as much as he messed up, David knew that he was God's. And God wants us to know that security. The security of our, our salvation, the inheritance that he's given us that awaits all who are his. So Paul, yeah, it's not only possible, but I would add it is nearly essential 
not essential to being saved, but it's certainly essential to living a fruitful Christian life. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. I can categorically say, Paul, that there isn't a single person who's abiding in Jesus that has a single question about their eternal destination. I know. Now, you've heard me say this before probably, Paul, but I've been saved for 27 years. And I've never had a single moment's doubt in 27 years that I was going to be in heaven. Not one doubt. The work was so profound in my heart. I'd been forgiven of so much sin that I just knew it. And nobody could ever convince me otherwise. From time to time, we have people coming through the church and uh, they'll, 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 well, you know, you can lose your salvation and I'll start talking to other people. Um, whenever I get people like that, say, well, well, wait a minute, does your salvation depend on you or does it depend on God? Well, it depends on God, but you know, you can walk away from it or you can lose it. Not if God is the one who's holding us. So Paul, try to remember that Jesus has you in his hand. And no one can snatch you from his hand. The Father, who's greater than he is, he says, also has you in his hand, and no one can snatch you from his hand. So he wants you to know, and I would add, he wants you to enjoy. Well, the phones are really quiet today, so let me get the phone number one more time, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Bill wants to know, what commentaries would I recommend on Revelation? Um, Bill, a couple of them. Uh, um, John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, I think is sort of the, the most complete work. It's, it's one I've recommended hundreds of times over the years. Uh, and it's, it's understandable, but it's, it's magnificent, complete, and correct in its eschatology. So that would be the first one. Um, um, you can get either his commentary on uh, Revelation or uh, his book, Things to Come, I think. No, that's Dwight Pentecost. Um, I can't remember right now what the name of the other book, but but you can see it. Um, just Google John Walvard, and, and it would be the best one. But there's a couple others that I like, Bill. One is... Um, um, Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost, the other book that I just mentioned. Um, the Commentary on Revelation by William Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L. Uh, I especially like that because um, he was a pre-1948 um, believer, commentator, who who trusted that God would reestablish Israel in their homeland. and um, He never wavered from that, so that's a really good one. So uh, Newell and um, um, John Walbert, I think, are the two best. Zach wants to know, I know Eve sinned first, so why is the sin charged to Adam? Um, Adam was the one that was created first by the direct hand of God. And, um, take a call. Oh, well, Zach, I'm going to go back there. We've got a call, and we've only got a few minutes, so let me take the call first. I'll come back to that one tomorrow. Um, let's see, we've got Wes from Johnson City. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, call in real quick. I hope you're doing good. I am, thank um, you. Good. Um, anyway, I listen to your teachings quite often, and I get a mixed message, and maybe it's just me because I'll, I'll, I'll start thinking about what you're teaching, and then come along and you'll say something that I totally agree with, but there's some things that just don't sit with me in regards to sin and works and obedience and those type of things. And uh, I know you preach uh, against sin, which is, you know, it's a good thing. Sin is destructive (laughs) in so many ways, and we should run from it. We should flee from that. But um, what I don't hear you teaching a lot, maybe I'm wrong, uh, correct me, but... uh, uh, the uh, fact that our sins are are forgiven if you're a born again believer, that the new covenant that Jesus is enough, and yet sin is 
um, a problem, no doubt, but he's taking care of that problem. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, he's but the, 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 believer. yeah, he's, he's taking care of the problem, but the, the, the way he's taking care of it is by calling us to repentance. And, and this is something that I preach about a lot, Wes, because what I'm interested in, remember, most of my messages are, are being given to Christian audiences. And I want people whose fellowship with God has been broken off to be reconnected with God. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from yeah, all unrighteousness. That verse in particular, excuse me, that verse in particular, I, put my, I might perceive it wrong, but to me, it was meant for the, the Christian that was just coming into salvation. And that was oh, an no. instruction for the, the new believer. Yeah. I mean, why do we confess uh, yeah. our sins? I mean, we should be in agreement that, yeah, uh, but an apology for the forgiveness of sins? Um, well, I, I may, yeah, be, on, I may let, be on a personal level yeah Wes, let, let me let me let me finish here let me let me take over because we're inside a minute now and I want to be sure to answer this um, we we uh, to, to apologize to God when we've fallen short of his glory is is necessary it's absolutely vital the book of first John is written to believers not not new believers they're, they're, new believers are addressed but so too are mature believers and 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 uh, um, uh, others who have fallen short of the glory of God. And John wants them um, to be in fellowship. That's the whole theme of the book. Wes, if you'll either call back tomorrow, I'd, I'd like to do this a lot more. Um, this is really an important thing, and I'll get to it on the first part of the program. So if you can't call, just tune in and I'll do it. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.